morning. And I'm going to share my heart with you, what the Lord has laid on my heart for you today. I told you a couple of weeks ago that we would be beginning a series of messages on end-time events. At that time, I did not know that it would start today, but it is, because that was just the direction I sensed the Lord taking me. What I will say to you this morning is that you thought you were just coming to church. You thought you were just going to, one more time, assemble yourself in the Lord's house. But can I just tell you, you don't want to miss the word for today. Because you didn't just come to church, you came to a wedding. I said you came to a wedding. And I believe in order for me to, with the Lord's help, adequately convey the messages over the next few weeks regarding end time events, it has to start with this word today. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture, Matthew 25 and then John 14, and then we're going to get into the Word this morning. I will dive into the 25th chapter a little deeper later in the message, but I want to read one verse from Matthew 25, and then we're going to go to John 14. Matthew 25, verse 6. It's the parable of the ten virgins. The Bible says, But at midnight there came a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. John chapter 14, verse number 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The King James has many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. I want to preach a message to you this morning simply titled, The Wedding. And with the Lord's help, we'll tie all of this together. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your power, your presence, God, that's in this room right now. God, I'm asking you, God, to anoint these lips of clay to minister your word to your people. Hide me behind the cross. God, this is not a personal agenda. This is not my time in the spotlight. But God, this is you. And if you don't show up, God, I'm in trouble. God, speak through me today. God, anoint the listeners and the hearers, God, to hear your word. Let it penetrate our heart and our spirit, God, and may we never be the same again. God, may we, may we be challenged, God, to grow deeper in our relationship with you. For truly I believe today, God, that time is winding down and it is short and we are in the last of the last days. God, I'm asking you to help today. God, you preach this message. God, just let me be your mouthpiece. Let me be the glove in which you place your hand, God. Do what you want to do in our midst today. Let the anointing flow freely right now. In Jesus' name, I pray. My God. 
Hallelujah. You may be seated this morning if you can. If you can't, that's fine too. Let me just set a couple things up for you as we get into the Word this morning. I believe we all understand and know this, but I want to just make this point just so it will help us as we move throughout the message this morning. Our Lord was Jewish. And He did things like a Jew. And so there are times when we need to consult Jewish laws and customs to understand why certain things in Scriptures happened the way they did. Now, I will be honest with you, I don't do a whole lot of preaching and where I tie in Jewish customs, and you've been under almost a year. Can you believe it's almost been a year since we've come to Oklahoma City? And you've not heard me preach quite like this, but this is necessary for us to understand some things in the Scripture today. And you need to look around, you need to find somebody that's not here today, and you need to message them and tell them, make sure they go online and listen to this message today. I'm telling you, if you'll get a hold of this word, it'll revolutionize and change your life. It'll change your perspective and how you view some things. But with Jesus being a Jew, we sometimes need to consult Jewish customs to find out the motives and particular actions of the Lord. I think we can appreciate that Jews had no dating or courtship as we now think of those things. Marriage to them was a practical legal matter established by contract and carried out through meticulous procedures. These customs exist in form today in the Jewish wedding ceremony and in Jesus' time they were of most fascinating and they were complex. You see, when a young man of Israel in Jesus' time saw the girl that he wanted or should I say the girl that his father said he wanted, he would approach them with a marriage contract. He would come to her house with a covenant, a true legal agreement, giving the terms by which he would propose marriage. It's often been stated, and it's supported in Scripture, that the church, the blood bought of the living God, is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. This is our marriage contract. Don't miss it. The most important consideration in the contract was the price the bridegroom would be willing to pay to marry this particular bride. The bride price is still utilized today in parts of the Mediterranean and African worlds. And while it seems to be old-fashioned or outdated or ancient to us now, it had some useful purposes. First of all, if the bridegroom was willing to sacrifice hard cash for his bride, he was showing his love in a most tangible way. Can I just tell you this morning that when Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth on the old rugged cross, he was showing his love for his bride in the most tangible way possible. Can I just tell you that when God spoke to holy men of old and they began to pen the scriptures as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, he gave us a contract, a marriage agreement, and a covenant that we could go back to. And this covenant is full of promise promises from our father it's a marriage contract 
Secondly, it was the favor, it was a favor to his future father-in-law. We've got to recall that in those days, farming and heavy labor was something of a liability to the father when he was raising a daughter. In those times, in those customs, a family with sons would prosper more because of the built-in workforce. But a family with daughters would expect to consolidate their losses sometime or someday in the fact that when their daughter married, they would get a son-in-law who would help with the work. When the girls were mature enough to attract the bridegrooms, that bridegroom or that groom when they were married would come and work for the father. Listen to this. It was the father's responsibility to raise a daughter who was good marriage material. That's truth. Because he wanted his daughter to be married to a, a man who could in turn help with the work of the family. The bridegroom would present himself to the bride with this agreement, offering to pay a suitable price for her. And she and her father would consider the contract. Can I just tell you this morning that Jesus' life on Calvary was the price, the bride price that was paid for you and I, just like in Jewish customs where the groom would come and pay a good price to the father of the potential bride. Jesus, by laying his life down on Calvary, prayed, paid the bride price for the church. He paid the price for you and I that we could become the bride of Christ. And may I just tell you that the price that he offered on Calvary was acceptable to the father of the bride God is our father and Jesus life on the cross was an acceptable bride price to the father of the bride my Lord God Jesus said no man takes my life I lay it down he would come he would pay the bride price Jesus is the bride price. He would present himself and the father and the bride or present the contract and the father and the bride would take and consider the contract. May I just tell you that any time that God looks at the contract and God looks at the bride price he knows and understands immediately that his price through the life of Jesus is the acceptable price that you and I could become the bride of Christ. When we kneel down at an altar and we confess our sins and we yield ourselves over to God. He looks at the blood that is applied to wash away all sin and God says that's acceptable to me. I'll welcome them into the family. I'll take the bride price because it's the shed blood of my own son, Jesus Christ. Help me, Holy Ghost. The terms became suitable to the bride. And the father, the bride, and the groom would drink a cup of wine together. This would seal the bargain. The cup was most significant. It signified the bridegroom's willingness to sacrifice in order to have this bride. Listen to what I'm telling you this morning. There's going to be some times that we have to make some sacrifices. There's going to be some times where we have to offer up a sacrifice of praise. You're going to have to praise him when you don't feel like it. Sometimes I don't praise him because of the way I feel. I praise him because of what I know. That in spite of my weakness, he makes me strong. 
In spite of all of the things that's come against me, I know him to be good and to be faithful and to be a mighty God. In spite of everything the enemy's thrown my way, I have found God to always be beside me and before me and behind me and within me and over me and under me. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. I've come to find out that sometimes in spite of the way I feel, in spite of what I'm walking through, I just need to throw my hands up and praise him anyway. The drink was offered as a toast to the bride. And of course it showed the bride's willingness to enter into this marriage. Can I tell you something I think we take too lightly? The relationship between the bride and the groom. Hello. It's a marriage. It's a covenant. And because there's a marriage and a covenant, there's some things. Hello. There's some things in, a, in, a, in an earthly marriage and an earthly covenant between a man and a woman, which is, let me just go ahead and just say, I'll throw this in here too, which is the only marriage institution recognized by God. But there are some things in the marriage between a man and a woman that would not be permitted by either spouse for the other spouse to engage in and partake of. Uh-huh. But sometimes we have no problem in our marriage with God of partaking of things that, and doing some things that we would never do in a marriage to our earthly spouse. We need to understand the price that was paid by the groom. The bride price was his life. The groom would pay this price. It should be said that this price was no modest token, but it was set so much so that the new bride would be a costly item. There's not anything more valuable than the life of Christ. The young man had no delusions that he was getting something for nothing. He would pay dearly to marry the girl of his choice. God spared no expense through the life of Jesus to make sure we had an avenue and a path to be restored to a right relationship with Him. He did not spare any expense. He didn't find the clearance rack. He didn't find the clearance rack to find the appropriate bride price. But he found the most prized possession he had. He found the most expensive thing available to him. He gave the most valuable, most important thing. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Oh, he went on down into verse 17 and he said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I just come by to remind you this morning that Jesus Christ is the bride price. Listen carefully. When the matter was settled between the, the groom and the future bride and the father, the groom would depart. Think back to our text and listen carefully. He would make a little speech to his bride and this is what in Jewish custom the groom would say after the bride price had been accepted. He would say as he was leaving in his speech, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
kind of puts that John 14 in a different perspective, doesn't it? Then he would return to his father's house. Back at the father's house, he would build her a bridal chamber. A little mansion, if you will, in which they would have their future honeymoon. It kind of brings John 14 into perspective when Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. We should appreciate that this was a complex undertaking for the bridegroom. He would actually build a separate building on the father's property or decorate a room in his father's house. The bridal chamber had to be beautiful. You see, one doesn't honeymoon just anywhere. It had to be stocked with provisions since the bride and groom were going to remain in the bridal chamber for seven days. This construction project, I'll talk more about the seven days in just a moment. The construction project would take the better part of a year ordinarily and the father of the groom would be the judge of when it was finished. You see, the, the groom couldn't just go throw up some little shack for his future bride and just run on back down to where she was at and collect her for the wedding and go begin to live. Oh no, he had to get the approval of his father that it was prepared to the specifications needed. What has this got to do with the end times? What has this got to do with Scripture? Let me remind you of what your Bible says. No man knoweth the day nor the hour of which the Son of Man will return. Only the Father knows because it's the Father who will give Jesus the signal and say, now go get my children. It's the same custom of a Jewish wedding. When the father says, now it's ready. Now you can go get your bride. We can see this logic. As I said, if it were up to the young man, he would just throw some kind of a modest structure up and go get the girl. But the father of the groom had to be the one who said, now is the time. He would be the final judge when the chamber was ready and when the young man would go claim his bride. In the meantime, back at the bride's house, for her part, she was obliged to do a lot of waiting. She would take the time to gather her belongings and her clothes and be ready when the bridegroom came. Custom provided that she had to have oil in her lamp and ready in case he came at a late at night and in the darkness because she had to be ready to travel at a moment's notice. Some of your minds are already clicking to Scripture right here, but I'm going to spell it out for you so you know where it's at. During this long period of waiting, she was referred to as consecrated, set apart, and bought with a price. We are the bride of Christ, and we are in the waiting period. We are awaiting the return of the bridegroom. And while we are in this waiting period, just as the bride in Jewish custom was, we are in a period of consecration, otherwise known as holiness. Because we still believe that holiness is God's standard of living. We are in a time where we are to be set apart. We are recognized as being bought with a price. She was truly a lady in waiting. 
But there was no doubt that her groom would return. Sometimes a young man would depart for a very long time. But of course he had paid a high price for the bride. And even though there were other young women available, he would surely return for the one whom he had made a covenant. He's coming back. The bride would wear a veil whenever she stepped out of the house so that other young men would realize that she was spoken for. That way they would not approach her with another contract. Today, we as the bride of Christ wear a veil. Those not understanding of our covenant try to make other contracts with us. They try to get us to violate the one that we have with the bridegroom. We are to resist those offers. We are to wait for the one who paid the price for us. We are to have the veil about us and when some other man or sin runs up with some kind of a contract getting us to violate the contract with our heavenly father, son, Jesus, we need to throw up the contract we have and say, you've come too late. I've already been bought with the bride price. I've already made a covenant with a groom. I'm just in waiting. I'm waiting for the return of the groom to Catch me away to be with him. It's okay to tell the world I'm taken. I'm not available. I'm not up for offer. You can't persuade me. You can't buy me. I've already been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. I'm not for sale. Help me, Holy Ghost. As the year would go on, the bride would assemble her sisters and bridesmaids. Whoever would go with her to the wedding when the bridegroom came and they would each have their oil lamps ready. You ever read something about that? That's Matthew 25. We'll get there in a moment. They would wait at her house every night on the chance that the groom would come along with his groomsmen and sweep them all away in a joyous and sudden wedding ceremony. Speaks of Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Five had their lamps trimmed and burning and five ran out of oil. Right? We read the text about midnight. There was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go out and meet him. Meanwhile, the bridegroom would be building and decorating with all that he had. His father would inspect the chamber from time to time to see if it was ready. And if we came along the road at this point and saw the young man working on his bridal chamber, we might even ask, when's the big day? The bridegroom could only answer, only my father knows. <laughs> you see, if you ask Jesus, when's the big day? The only answer he can say is, only the father knows. Finally, the chamber was ready. The bridegroom would assemble his young friends to accompany him on the exciting trip to go claim his bride. The big moment had arrived. The bridegroom was more than ready. You can be sure of that. He and his young men would set out in the night making every attempt to completely surprise the bride. Why is this important? Because my Bible tells me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, For ourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. My Lord God, I dare say there will be many surprised by the arrival of the bridegroom. 
We truly do not know the day. We just know that we are to be watching and waiting. And while we're watching and waiting, we are to be consecrated. We are to be set apart because we've been bought with a price. My Lord. We come in and completely surprise the bride. And here's the romantic part. All the Jewish brides were stolen. The Jews had a special understanding of a woman's heart. What a thrill it was for her to be abducted and carried off into the night. Not by a stranger, but by the one who loved her so much that he had paid a high price for her. What a grand and glorious day it's going to be. Can I just tell you that when Jesus Christ steps out on the clouds of glory and abducts the blood-bought church of the living God and he catches us away at a moment's notice like a thief in the night, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. I don't know about you, but I'm here to tell you it's not very long from now. I truly believe that God is poised. He is ready. He's about to get the signal and Jesus Christ is about to come back for the church help me Jesus meanwhile over at the bride's house things had better be ready to be sure the bride would be surprised since the groom would try to come at midnight while she was sleeping the oil lamps were ready and the bride had her veil while she might be sleeping in her wedding dress she was definitely surprised it's a wonder she would sleep at all as the year went on. Now listen, there were rules that had to be observed of a woman's feelings. The groom couldn't just rush in on her. After all, her hair may be in rollers. Actually, as the excited party of young men, my Lord, As the excited party of the young men would get close to the house, they were obliged to give a warning. And somebody in the wedding party would shout, Behold, the bridegroom! Oh, let me, let me, let me. Let me just get on down here and read it like this. Because I want you to know it's in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord himself will descend with a shout. Hey, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air together to be with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, he said, comfort one another with these words. He didn't just write it so it would sound good. He wrote it because it was following the Jewish custom. From the distance, behold the bridegroom. When the bride heard that shout, she knew her young man would be there momentarily. Can I tell you, when you hear the shout, you better know it's all coming to an end. Now, actually, the party's only just beginning. She only had time to light her lamp, grab her honeymoon clothes, and go. The sisters and the bridemaids who wanted to attend had to have their lamps trimmed and ready, of course. No one would try to walk through ancient Israel with its rocky terrain in the dark of night without carrying a lamp. 
So the groom and his men would charge in. They would grab the girls and make off with them. The father of the bride and her brothers would look the other way, perhaps just making one quick check to see that it was the young man with the contract. And then the wedding party would be off. People in the village might be awakened from their sleep by the happy voices of the young people carrying oil lamps through the street. And that's how they knew there was a wedding going on. Get ready. Don't miss this. Today we hear car horns. Back then they saw lamps at night. Those looking on would not know who the bride was because she was still wearing the veil. But she would be returning through these same streets a week later with her groom. And the veil would be off. At the return of the bride with the bridegroom, all the people would know just who got married. They would realize the total significance of this wedding. Watch this. When the wedding party reached the house of the groom's father, the bride and groom would go into the chamber and shut the door. Seven days. No one else would enter. The groom's father, meanwhile, would have assembled the wedding guest and his friends. Now, why is this important? Because you've got to understand that the seven days that the bridegroom and the bride would go into the bridal chamber is the representation of the seven years of tribulation. I am not a mid-trib or post-trib rapture theorist. If you want to go on the second bus or the third bus, you do you, boo. Pastor Bounds is going on the first bus. Brother Mike, I still believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe Jewish wedding customs support it and solidify it. <laughs> they would be ready to celebrate the new marriage. Now these friends, just hear me out. As the bride and the groom are there, I believe the friends that are being gathered speaks of the patriarchs of old. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul and the disciples, the apostles of old. They would be ready to celebrate the new marriage. Since the wedding was actually going to take seven days until the appearance of the bride and groom out of the chamber, it was hard to plan for. Watch this. Occasionally, the host would run out of wine. As we went well imagine. The Lord Himself graced the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2 with His presence and replenished the wine for the celebrants as, as we are told when they ran out of wine. He turned the water into wine. One of the, the first miracles Jesus performed. So as we are here with the bride and groom in the bridal chamber, there is a preparation going on. The celebration wouldn't start right away. The marriage had to be consummated. The Jews were a most law-abiding people, and law provided that the bride and groom become one before their marriage was recognized. The friend of the bridegroom, perhaps we might refer to him as the best man, would stand near the door of the bridal chamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. When the marriage had been consummated, the bridegroom would tell his friend through the door and the friend would go tell the wedding guests and he would announce the good news to them. The celebration would then begin and it would continue for an entire week. At the end of the week, the bride and the groom would make their long-awaited appearance to the cheers of the crowd. There would be a joyous meal, a marriage supper, which we might refer to as a wedding reception to honor the new couple. 
Have you ever heard of the marriage supper of the Lamb? At this point, the bride would have discarded her veil since she was now a married woman. And all would see exactly who the bridegroom had chosen. The new couple and their guests would enjoy a magnificent feast to conclude their, mat to conclude their matrimonial week. After the marriage supper, the bride and the groom would depart, not remaining any longer at the home of the groom's father. They would instead go to their own house, which had been prepared by the bridegroom. The bride of Christ will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the groom's father. You believe what you want to believe, but I'm telling you what I believe. And I believe this supports it. Those seven years, all hell will be breaking loose on earth, which is we know as the tribulation period. I have good news for you. The redeemed of the Lord... Doesn't have to go through that. The redeemed of the Lord are going to escape the tribulation. While everything's happening down here, we're going to be on the other side of glory. And we're going to be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. But, watch this. As the bride and groom would finish up their matrimonial week, they would return to the village or the home of the bride without the veil everybody would find out who the bride was what does that mean after the seven years of tribulation we need to understand some terminology there are two advents one we know is the rapture and the other we know is the second coming too many times, people within the church get those two terms confused. They will refer to the rapture as the second coming, but it's not. The rapture is when we hear the shout of the Lord and the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ rise first, and then those who are alive and remain go with him in the air. And we go to heaven for seven years for the matrimonial week. While the tribulation period is taking place here on earth. After that time... We will return to the earth with Jesus. He'll come back riding on a white horse. We're going to come back in the company with him. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, he is coming back to let the world know who the true king of kings and the true Lord of lords is. And when we comes back, we're coming back with him and we're going to set up and we're going to rule and to reign with him. I just tell you that the rapture of the church, the second coming, two separate events follows Jewish wedding customs to the T. You'll never read John 14 verses 1 through 4 again without a better understanding of why Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go I will come again. And receive you unto myself. You'll never read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again without a better understanding of when Jesus says, when the Bible says, the Lord himself shall descend with a shout. Matthew 25, 6, when you read that again, when it says, behold the bridegroom, you'll understand better the parable of the Jewish wedding customs as the wedding party would come in and they would announce their arrival. I don't know what you're listening for, but I'm listening for the arrival of the bridegroom. But see, we have been, we have been commanded 
as we are a lady in waiting, we are the bride of Christ to be consecrated, to keep within the confines of the marriage contract and the marriage agreement. You see, this is not a book of multiple choice. We can't pick and choose what we want to abide by and not abide by. This is in totality the marriage contract. And we've got to make sure that our life is aligned with the marriage contract. I don't want to be found in breach of contract. Let me just finish by saying this. The price that Jesus paid was the bride price for us. He goes back to prepare the mansion. He's waiting on the signal of the Father to tell him now's the time you can go get your bride. We should have a veil over our face that lets the world know we're not available. There should be a veil over our heart that lets the world know we're not available. We're not up for sale. But if somebody if somebody does come up to us because we've allowed the veil to be removed, we need to be remembering that we're under contract. We're under covenant with God. And when the shouts given, the announcements made, he's coming as a thief in the night. Just like in the Jewish custom, the bride had no idea she would be prepared every night just in case it was the night. Can I tell you, as the church of the living God, we've got to be prepared every day because we know not the day nor the hour of the coming of the Son of God. We've got to be ready. We can't afford to not be ready because He is coming in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as a thief in the night. We're going to hear the announcement and the shout and the blast of the trumpet and the dead in Christ are going to rise. Those who are alive and reign are going to go home to be with Him. We're going for seven years. And while we are celebrating and we're just having a merry feast for seven years, the absolute worst catastrophe known to humanity will be taking place where we are today. Called the seven years of tribulation. Don't you let anybody try to convince you that the bride of Christ has to go to the midpoint of the tribulation or the end of the tribulation before the rapture. That's not scriptural in my opinion. Now listen, I'm just an old cornbread and turnip greens and slab of onion kind of country boy. And I don't have a whole lot of understanding of some things, but I, I consider myself to be pretty smart in some things. And I learned, I hated math in school, but I taught math in Texas. And I just had to come to the realization that anybody can do math. It's like playing a board game. If you just learn the rules, you can do it. What's all I got to do with this? I'm fixing to show you something. Just follow my train of thought for a minute, and I'm done. Seven years of tribulation, half of seven is three and a half. Can we agree to that? So if we're going to be, if the rapture is going to take place at the midpoint, mid. Waypoint of the tribulation 
We have enough descriptive terms in Scripture to let us know the events of tribulation as to when it's going to begin because we can align some things up with Scripture with that. Yes? So if, if, we, if we're mid-trib theorists, then we can almost calculate at the three-and-a-half point. While we may not know the day or the hour, we can almost pinpoint the time of the arrival of Jesus at three-and-a-half point. Does that make sense to anybody else? If we're post-trib theorists, then at the end of seven years, it's got to happen at that point, right? So in my opinion, in my expertly math opinion, the only way that it can be completely a surprise arrival of the, of the bridegroom is it has to be before the tribulation starts. I know that's not Lee University worthy. That's just good old country common sense. But it makes sense to me. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into the tribulation. We're going to dive into the battle of Armageddon. We're going to dive into a whole host of things. But here's what I want you to understand. From this day forward, as we move through life, I want you to take into consideration the bride price that was paid. It was costly. It wasn't cheap. And that's why it's important for us to read Scripture. Listen. People in the church are perishing for a lack of knowledge. Hello. What I've come to learn is, help me Jesus. We've quit preaching about the end time stuff. We don't preach about what's going to happen. And because we don't preach about it anymore, we got people who are saved in the church that has no idea what's about to happen. Because most people won't read Revelation because they don't adequately understand it and they shy away from it. Because just to be honest with you, in some terms it's been spoken to me, Pastor, it freaks me out. Hello? But we in the pulpit have decided that it's a, it's a better way of shepherding if we just talk about the good life. And the blessed life. And the prosperous life here on earth. And I believe we can have the blessed life and the prosperous life here on earth. I'm not trying to minimize that. But what I'm telling you is at some point, we have to get down to the nitty-gritty and let people know Jesus is really about to come back. And if people ain't ready, they will go through the seven years of tribulation. It's not going to be pretty. I've told you over the last several weeks, Panera Bread, Whole Foods, Installing palm scanners where you can walk, walk up and wave your palm in front of a scanner and pay for your items. Sounds like the mark of the beast to me. Hello? Well, we're going to talk about the mark of the beast. Mr. Bounds, wave your palm. I'll not wave my palm in front of that machine. Hello? I will not conform because the fact of the matter is We've allowed the line to be pushed so much that if we don't start drawing a line now and taking a stand, we're going to be pushed all the way back. And I'm going to tell you something. You've heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it right here, and I'm done. Brother, if you don't come on, I'm going to preach another hour. Help me and help them too. I'm going to tell you like this. 
if we want to believe that Jesus is graceful and merciful, and He is, if we want that kind of a Jesus, we also have to have the kind of Jesus that flips over tables and drives people out of His house with a whip because they're buying and selling in the temple. What are you saying? I'm saying, yes, He's a God of grace and He's a God of mercy, but I'm also telling you this, that He is a God of His Word. And what He said, He will do. And it is incumbent upon us to be ready. I can't be ready for you and you can't be ready for me. I can only take care of me and you can only take care of you. Hello, somebody. But I'm telling you, as sure as I know what the Bible says, is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I don't know about you, but I want to be ready. I want to have some oil in my lamp. We used to sing that little old song, Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. When we was a kid, we changed the words of the second line. We'd say, give me gas for my truck. Keep me trucking for the Lord. I don't want to be like the five foolish virgins that didn't have no oil in their lamp. Hello. They got left behind when the wedding party came and swept the bride away. I want to be like the ones that's got some oil. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go ye out to meet him. No greater words you'll ever hear spoken than behold. There's a few words in Scripture that when you hear them, you better know something's about to happen. Lo is one of them. Suddenly is another one. And behold is one of them. Behold! Here comes the bridegroom. He's coming for his bride. Let me tell you something. We're going to be swept away. We're going to go to heaven. We're going to spend seven years up there. And the next time he comes, he's coming as a rider of the white horse. And we're coming back with him. And we're going to, he's going to set his kingdom up. We're going to rule and reign with him. My blessed God. And all's going to know who the bride is. Stand with me all over this house. Are you married today? I ain't talking about to the person sitting next to you. I'm asking you, are you married today? I don't care how single you may be. I don't care what your relationship status says on Facebook. I don't care if you're married. I don't care if you're single. I don't care if it's complicated. I don't care what it says. My question is, are you married today? And I ain't talking about to no earthly spouse. I'm talking about to the heavenly one. Have you applied the wedding garment? Are you without spot and without blemish today? Listen, I get it. This is the third week in a row we've done a lot of self-reflection in this house. But I'm telling you, as sure as I know I'm standing before this body of people today, brother, more time is winding down. The coming of the Lord is closer now than it ever has been. It is a time that we stop playing games. It's time that we stop playing patty cake and we get down to serious business. Lord, if there's anything in my life that's not like you, reveal it to me so I can confess of it and I can get it under the blood.